We're going to turn to scripture, and as Chris mentioned earlier, uh, we have these movements as a church where we believe that God has actually communicated to us how we get to approach him and listen to him and worship him and go in his name. And during this time when we open up the scriptures, we're actually looking to listen to God. We believe that he speaks to us through the scriptures, that the spirit helps us as we open up God's word to understand its meaning to us in our moment and who God is in the midst of the world that we are in. You can open up to Ecclesiastes 2 today. Ecclesiastes, it's just to the right of Psalms and Proverbs, okay? Just open your Bible up straight to the middle, swipe in your app to the middle. It's just to the right of Proverbs. It'll be up here on the screen behind me. If you don't have uh, a copy of it, we would love to give you a Bible as well over here on the table if you do not have one. Be our gift to you. We have been in a series called Not Your Own, um, Real Freedom in the Age of Self. And the purpose of this series, week by week, is to identify the underpinnings of our world that we live in today um, that tells us we belong to ourselves. And yet, it produces a kind of fruit that's bitter and even toxic in our lives when it comes to God's will for us. If we want our faith to be a lived reality and not just ideas, we need to understand with wisdom how to embrace our belonging to God as Christians. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to, to actually have surrendered yourself and given yourself over to the living Jesus Christ to be his people, to be his body. And so we are not our own, and we're diving into particular topics each week and uh, over the last few, we've dived into vocation and what our purpose is in the world. We've dived into authority and how we relate to authority in the world. Last week, we dove into justice and God's heart for justice and how we fit into all of that. Today, we're taking a dive a bit under the surface. We're like opening up our chests in order to understand what does the effect of not being our own but belonging to God how does that relate to our interior world? The world of our desires, our longings, our hopes, our dreams, and asking the question, how does belonging to Jesus affect that, okay? And I just gotta say at the outset, when Chris, we call him KB, Chris Brissett, KB came up here to do our giving invitation. He had, didn't know what I was gonna be speaking on. Generally, someone stands up and says, hey, God's word says this. You pay attention to it, you say, oh yeah, 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 okay, that's good. When, when the same thing is said to you a second time, in a short amount of time, you had no idea what I was going to be speaking on today. Um, and we're, we're talking about consumerism. When God says something to you twice, let's pay serious attention, okay? So, um, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 through 11 I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. 
I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasure of king, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered that all my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity in a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to speak to us. Would you help us to dive into the mysterious waters of our hearts, our desires, our longings, our motivation? And Holy Spirit, we ask you, uh, reveal to us what we cannot see. Allow us to be honest with ourselves and with you and with others, knowing that as we do so, we actually are entering into your very presence that is here with us, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see how we are truly free because we are not our own, but belong to you. And so would you make us wise that we might become fruitful for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can take a seat. So, um, in December, my in-laws came into town. We went out to Ojai. Anybody ever been to Ojai? Yeah? Ojai fans in the house? I gotta, I gotta confess, I was expecting something far bigger than I had, but it was great nonetheless. One of the days, uh, we went pot throwing. Anyone ever been pot throwing? Yeah, in Los Angeles, you need to kind of explain that, right? <laughs> pot throwing. Um, it's, it's the spinning of pottery. So you take a ball of clay, and you have a spinning wheel, and you put it on there, and then you turn it into something that's not a ball anymore, but something that could be useful. And so we're there, and this eclectic older woman with like tie-dye and various other things comes out and says, you're going to learn how to throw pots today. And so we're, great, sit down, each at our own spinning wheel. And she says this, the most important and also one of the hardest components of throwing pottery is centering the clay. Centering the clay, right? You science majors realize that when there's that spinning and you're molding something, it's really important that you're at the center of that motion in order to get something that can actually be built up. So we try our hand at it and she tells us the technique and pretty soon you feel like you got it centered well and then as you're building up, though, if you start wobbling at the top of it, there's no going back. You're done. And what actually started happening, I'm building it up and thinking, wow, this looks pretty good. Dang, I'm, I'm all right at this. Maybe I should look into like a hobby of throwing pottery. And then as I get like more than a few inches up into something that would actually be useful, 
This wobble enters in, and I'm like, no, you panic moment. You're like, I can still save it. I can still save it. And then eventually it just flings off and tears the top of your pot off. Try it again. Same result. What's the point? Well, what you are centered on is very similar to the centering technique that's required in throwing a pot. We all in, in this room, by virtue of our humanity, are trying to build a life into something. We just sang a song uh, earlier, center my life. Center my life on your name. The whole idea of what it means to be human is we all, we're all centered on something. And if that something is in the actual center of the universe, you're going to start running into the universe. And the top's going to get ripped off the higher you try and build up. And we believe that Jesus came into the world as the Son of God to show us where we can actually center our lives and be built up into something beautiful as image bearers of God. Now, Socrates uh, famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. A part of exam... And he would agree with the book of Ecclesiastes, right? We just read the author of Ecclesiastes, and maybe he agrees with Ecclesiastes, but to genuinely examine our lives, we got to actually look at the hands that have shaped us. How did we get here, where we are, and become the kinds of people we are trying to bring ourselves into the presence of God? Why is it so hard to follow Jesus? It's another way of saying it. Our main point today is that all we need to do is look back a couple of decades, uh, probably like five or six, to see that we come into the gathering of God's people misshapen by our culture to mistake consumption for what we really desire deep down. That our world has formed us to believe in our humanness that we have many, many needs, and many of those we find Jesus just is not all that interested in fulfilling for us. So, rather than consumption, Jesus has wired us for communion. You and I exist in our very humanness regardless of whether you consider yourself a Christian here or not. You were made for communion. That is to be so interrelated in your very identity with the community of other people, with our relational God, that you would find fulfillment and joy and satisfaction in the context of relationship. There was a Harvard study that came out like 80 or 90 years ago. No, it was probably 70 years ago. I keep getting all my dates wrong. Um, that actually looked at what does it take to have a happy life? And it came all the way down to, this was a longitudinal study, started with teenagers, looked at people who were in their later life, and they said, okay, how can we track this? The number one factor for a happy life, regardless of whatever your faith might be, just in your humanness alone, was deep and satisfying relationships. The world knows that this is true, and we're going to see that Scripture actually tells us that it, it, it was intentional by God. So, what we're going to look at today is that if we are not our own, 
but belong to God, we need to look at what does it mean to pursue intimacy with God in an age of consumption? What does it mean to seek communion in a moment of consumption? As human image bears, true comfort is not going to ever be found in being a consumer, but in being with Jesus, the one we belong to, so deeply that we are free from our cravings and compulsions to follow him with a life that is really human. So, one of the great aims of every generation in the church must be to see where it has taken the glory of the gospel and turned it into a bit of a caricature, all right? That is to take one beautiful truth of what God has done for you and for me and to make it the whole, all right? Um, I was walking with some family in Santa Monica yesterday, and we heard, I heard more street preachers than I've ever heard in my life. Probably heard four or five of them. And the message was the same, every single one over the loudspeaker. Jesus came to die for your sins. Repent that you could get into heaven. Okay? That is a beautifully glorious truth of the gospel. That our moral guilt, accountable to our Creator, by whom we have wandered and done our own will, that we could be reconciled through the sacrifice of Jesus. But the problem is, when we turn that into the whole, we miss out on everything else that has happened, and it turns into a kind of caricature that is so disconnected from our present world, and God has so much more than a caricature for us. He has His presence, and it speaks to every generation. And so, as the church, we need to be able to identify, where do we tend to make a caricature out of God in the gospel? And as having been a pastor and been in ministry for a while, there's a newer version of a caricature that I think we've embraced, okay? And that is that Jesus is the one who can fulfill all of your desires. It's a beautiful truth. Jesus says, come to me and you'll no longer thirst. Feast here and you'll never be hungry again. Jesus fulfills desires. But when we make that the whole of what it means to be a Christian, in a in a culture that is ever seeking to expand our desires, that kind of life and caricature can end up being destructive for our faith. And so what we need to see is that as we approach this conversation to say, what does it mean to follow Jesus in a culture that is just riddled with consumerism as its primary identity that it's trying to heap upon us? And if our gospel feeds into our consumerism, no wonder our discipleship is so hard. Good news, the gospel's bigger than merely fulfilling our desires. So, let's look at this. Um, we're looking at Ecclesiastes, and I, as a pastor, realize that many of you maybe have never even opened the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in that hard-to-read section of the Bible for our modern eyes, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Um, one theologian and actually Episcopal priest, Justin Holcomb, who is actually for a short time my boss up in Seattle, funny story, wrote this about Ecclesiastes. 
What spoils life, according to Ecclesiastes, is the attempt to get more out of life, out of work, pleasure, money, food, and knowledge, than life itself can provide. This is not fulfilling and leads to weariness, which is why the book begins and ends with the exclamation, all is vanity. This refrain is repeated throughout the entire book. No matter how wise or rich or successful one may be, one cannot find meaning in life apart from God. In Ecclesiastes, the fact that all is vanity should drive all to fear God, whose work endures forever. God does what he will, and all beings and all of creation stand subject to him. Rather than striving in futile attempts to gain meaning on our own terms, what is really significant is taking pleasure in God and his gifts and being content with what little life has to offer and what God gives. Following Jesus is certainly something that is fulfilling and satisfying, but that is not the whole. There is a wisdom to realizing we are created with limitations so that we would receive life from God and restrict our desires so that we could be as fully human as God intended. So, let's look at Ecclesiastes. Let's look at Ecclesiastes. Um, in verses 1 and 2, we, we are reading and listening to this character who in chapter 1 was identified as the preacher, right? The preacher. In the original Hebrew, it's the, it's the teacher, it's the declarer, it's the one who is leading us through this book and the preacher identifies himself as the king of Jerusalem. So many interpreters and commentators just assume that this is King Solomon, David's son. He was, he was wealthy beyond all everything imaginable at the time. He wrote much of Proverbs. And now Ecclesiastes is actually kind of a counterbalance to Proverbs. You read through Proverbs, and there's, there's not a lot of nuance. Proverbs just simply says, hey, you do this. You live in light of the grain of the universe that God has created, and you're going to live a blessed life. You go against the grain of the universe, you're going to experience difficulty in life. But then just when you think it's that simple, the same guy wrote Ecclesiastes, which says, no matter how you live, all is vanity. All right? And so we're in one of those chapters where the preacher is actually leading us by the hand and saying, I sought out with all the power and wealth I had, how to really find a fulfilling life as a human being. And so in chapter one, he says, I sought out wisdom and I found out all is vanity. In chapter two, he asks the question, can pleasure satisfy? And in verses one and two, we see, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. And then in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. So, the most powerful person in the known world at the time said, I'm not going to withhold any pleasure for myself. And I'm going to see what's at the end of that life. And so for a time, devoted himself there. His conclusion, no amount of pleasure will satisfy you. Verse 10, behold, this was vanity. 
I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I got nothing to add to the simplicity of what this guy says, who had all the power in the world to afford any pleasure in the world, and he said, I pursued it to its end, and it was empty. In verses 4 through 9, the preacher pursues productivity and power. Productivity and power. Maybe it's not pleasure that really grips your heart. It's being someone who is successful. The preacher says, I made great works, built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and made myself pools. He even says he gained power over people. I bought slaves. I got singers and concubines. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. So the one who had the whole world at his fingertips changed everything about his environment, accrued power, accolade, success. His conclusion, no amount of power or productivity will satisfy you. Verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's not just the preacher in Ecclesiastes who tells us things like this. Uh, Tom Brady just retired. Thank God. <laughs> um, um, and I, I will never forget reading an article. He did an interview with a magazine. And after maybe his like fourth Super Bowl title, he describes sitting in a hotel room with all of his rings. And the words that came out of his mouth in the interview was reciting what he had thought. Is this all there is? Jim Carrey used to be my favorite actor until I watched the, the documentary about him making Man on the Moon and saw he was crazy. He too said, I wish... Everyone got everything their heart ever wanted so they could do anything that they wanted and that they would see that that's not the answer. It's not just a guy from 3,000, 3,500 years ago who can tell us these things. People in our modern day who are ahead of many of us in this room as young people say, I know you think the answer's way ahead of you, or just around the corner, or greener pastures. Trust me, I've been through that pasture. You won't be satisfied. But that doesn't help us know what to do with our longings then. If it's not out there, and it's not, what do we do with this stuff in us then? Do we just become ascetic monks and like retreat from the world and deny ourselves in every way and assume that longing is bad? No. God put limitations on us. You and I have to eat food in order to live. You and I need food and energy to serve and love other people and to, to fulfill the assignment that God has for us. In some way, we could argue all of us need to be consumers. Let me, let me change that. You and I need to consume in order to live, God knew that. But it's a whole different ball game 
to believe that our longings inside will be fulfilled in the consumption of things. That's to be a consumer. The preacher has wisdom for us. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. Just think about that statement for a second. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. He's not talking about a bank account that can't fill up more. He's saying no matter what you acquire, no matter what pleasure you can experience, it's not gain. Every single one of us in this room needs to go back to that pottery example and say, where are we centered? Because the world tells you there's gain off-center. If you build up a really successful resume, then you'll have meaning in life. If you make enough money so that you're safe and secure from any threat the world could bring to you, then you'll have gained. And the preacher says, by virtue of being human, you already have access to everything you need to be fully content and satisfied. If you're breathing and hearing me and made in the image of God as every human being in history has been, you cannot gain anything else under the sun. But the world tells us a totally different story, and we've got to take 30 seconds and hear that story and its roots in order to understand how we got here. Um, according to BBC, uh, the notion of human beings as consumers first took shape before World War I, but became commonplace in America in the 1920s. Consumption is now frequently seen as our principal role in the world. People, of course, have always consumed the necessities of life, food, shelter, clothing, and have always had to work to get them or have others work for them. But there was little economic motive for increased consumption among the mass of people before the 20th century. Quite the reverse, frugality and thrift were more appropriate to situations where survival rations were not guaranteed. But a massive shift occurred through industrialization. U.S. production was more than 12 times greater in 1920 than in 1860. 60 years, 12 times as much production, but the population had only increased by a factor of three. So then what, what do factories do and companies do that have all this extra technology that then allows them to make more stuff? According to one historian of the time, Frederick Allen, he said, business had learned, as never before, the importance of creating the ultimate consumer. Unless he could be persuaded to buy and buy lavishly, the whole stream of factories would be dammed up and stopped. So, another historian in the 20th century writes, the cardinal feature of this culture were acquisition and consumption as the means of achieving happiness. The cult of the new, the democratization of desire became normal. Lastly, an economist of the 20th century called that movement the new economic gospel of consumption. 
why do I read all these quotes in church? <laughs> like the pottery example and the reflection that's required to live a meaningful life following Jesus, if we don't know the context in which we have been shaped by hands outside of our control, we will not understand what adjustments we need to make in order to be centered on the real center of the universe, Jesus Christ. The whole system that we live in as a society is bent on convincing you happiness comes with the next iPhone, with the next car, with the reputation, with the clothing, with the degree, with the accolades, with the CV, with the promotion. We're all aware of this. The gospel of consumption plagues us. I mean, totally forthright with me. After a long, hard, busy day, stress, energy, long day, I get home. I don't, I do not want, this is, this is my own blind spot. She's actually home with the kids this, today. The kids are a little sick. Um, I do not desire to just talk to my wife and connect. You want to know what I desire? Laying on the couch and watching Netflix. Just totally honest, right? And for a lot of us, we've assumed that that's why we had worked all day. So that then we'd have the freedom, 12 bucks a month, time, a couch, that that's the goal of life. And I just started to ask myself in those moments where I feel the pull, right? We're getting like deep in our gut right now. Like why, why is that the compulsive desire that I have? And I just tried to start saying, what do I really want right now? And after I reflected a little bit through that, what I started to realize was I just wanted to, to unplug and be entertained. Like I just don't want to need to deal with the complexity of life. I don't want to need to think about how half of my day was wasted because I'm not in total control of what I do and the results. What's important though, like we got to be able to be honest about that and we got to know we were made for something so much better. We were made for something so much more dignified and purposeful and satisfying than to work all day, be well thought of by others, and go watch Netflix on the couch. There are certainly days where that's needed, and we're not gonna become a people that are like, oh, you watched, they told me they watched Netflix after work the other day. That's not what I'm saying. That's just a symptom of the thing that's going on in us. This happens all over. We open the fridge when we're not hungry. <laughs> I do that all the time. What is wrong? It's where food is. Food is for when you're hungry. But we've swapped something. Food is a gift from God. There is good, like, tastes. Like, God created taste. We're supposed to be able to enjoy our food. But that's not the ultimate reason for food. God created sex. Can we be big boys and girls and I could say, sex is enjoyable? And God made it? But when it's to consume the feeling, we've ripped it away from God's intent. 
And so what you see is this whole world we've lived in has paid billions of dollars and who knows how many hours to convince you that real life will be found in consuming. But if we just lift up the rocks and start asking, wait a second, why do I want that for that purpose? We see we're made for something so much more. And underneath the rock, when you look at your longings, every single one of them will eventually awaken in you this realization you were made for God. And some of it is just to get into his presence and find joy there. But some of it is to actually be chastened and transformed practically so that you don't need as much as you think you need. That you could give yourself away in love and not just be thinking about Netflix on the couch the whole time. And as we lift up these rocks in our souls, we find that God actually has answers for us. That he actually desires. Do you know that when Jesus came, sparked the church, resurrection happens, Holy Spirit gets poured out, that the church was actually first called followers of the way? Huh. You don't know why? Because Jesus didn't come to just save you from your sins. He came to save you from yourself and the life you thought you needed to live. When Jesus says, forgive people, and Jesus says, fast, and Jesus says, pray, and Jesus says, tithe, Matthew 23. He's actually laying out a particular kind of life that submits us properly underneath God as our creator, who knows what is best for us. And our cravings that the world seeks to expand to infinite proportions, we've all had the moment where we got exactly what we thought we wanted and we feel worse. Like I'm at the point, real talk again, I'm at the point where like, I'm like caffeined out. I love coffee so much. Chris was preaching last week talking about coffee. I'm just like, mm, I need coffee. But caffeine doesn't actually work for me really anymore. That's, God made us purposefully to be able to expand in our capacity, but it's not to expand in our capacity for desire. It's to expand in our capacity for relationship with him that his infinite glory would make a solid people who can give ourselves away in a world of darkness and sadness and aloneness. The preacher in Ecclesiastes would agree with Jesus when he said in Matthew 11, 28 through 29, this is Jesus, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's why we're searching. Rest for our souls. Wholeness. Peace. but we're looking in the wrong places. We're centered by culture, culture's hands, in the wrong part of the wheel. And so as you start following Jesus, it's all good at first. Like when that pot is like that tall, 
doesn't matter that you're not centered. But the higher you build it up, the wobble starts to kick in and eventually it just rips the whole top off. And the invitation is to address the foundation and to say maybe we've been indoctrinated by the lie that we're perpetual consumers that will finally be happy with a little bit more or that we're, we need power and control and success. And Jesus is just saying, you already got me. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. So, it's probably Jesus calling. <laughs> I just want to ask us really simply, if we're not our own, but belong to God, we were not made for consumption. We're not made to take the stuff that God created and gave and said it's good. And we're not intended to, to take the limitations that he gave us and turn toward the world and say, I'm all yours. Tell me what I need. But to take that back into the presence of Jesus. Did you notice that Jesus said, come to me? Jesus looked into the corridor of history to 2022. And he said, come to me, TCLA. We sometimes think Jesus saves us for heaven. He lived way back then. We're holding on till, till the future. But we believe in a supernatural reality of the very presence of Jesus Christ in the world by his Holy Spirit. That any one of us, simply by looking in the right direction, can experience the peace and the fulfillment of longings and the wholeness to be human in a moment. Intimacy is the path into God's presence, into communion with him. Because we can't just substitute stuff for Jesus and commune on him and take from him without actually dealing with him on his terms. And intimacy is intimidating. Like, let's be honest, intimacy is intimidating. We live in an image world. We think the minute that we divulge our weaknesses or what embarrassing stuff, everyone's ghosting us. Kind of like uh, we bought my little girl, she's a two now. We bought her a, a balance bike, those bikes without pedals, where you see little kids just like running like Flintstone style on a bike. And she saw it. She goes, oh, bike! She sees this new helmet, helmet! And puts it on. And she's, she like brings it to me and wants help. And then she gets on it and she starts going. And she just doesn't even know what to do, even though her feet are on the ground. And she's walking and eventually it starts falling this way. And she goes like that and she throws it. And she's angry because it's not easy. The idea of the bike was so compelling to her until she had to deal with it on its terms. Jesus is really compelling, or the idea of Jesus, until we need to deal with him on his terms. So the invitation to you and me today is, how are we going to open up to him those, those chests that we have that are so complicated and we don't even know left from right inside and say, have your way. You are trustworthy, all right? I have a few simple 
considerations to give you, okay? If we're not our own, but belong to Jesus, who calls us to find life in his presence and in pouring ourselves out in love, how can we begin to release ourselves from the hooks which have enslaved us to our desires? Well, we got to push back on this gospel of consumption and learn the life of communion with God by cultivating intimacy with Jesus and people around us. Three things that have to happen as a people, as a church, us, together. Any one of these ha uh, fails corporately, the whole thing will go kaput. First, let's inject some controlled suffering into our lives. Let's inject some controlled suffering into our lives. Um, Jesus assumed his disciples would fast. What is fasting? It's abstaining specifically from food, right? It's kind of become in vogue, and I used to do this too. Then I heard someone explain the difference between abstaining from something and real fasting. Fasting for all of history has been food, all right? Let's make a little trajectory adjustment to say fasting is from food. Some of you have legitimate reasons you can't fast. That is okay, but let's not just use the nomenclature that says, oh, I'm fasting from social media, and call that fasting, as though it's the same thing as not eating meals, and your body is screaming at you from the inside. Okay, That's abstaining from something that you might be relying on. The reason that injecting suffering into your life is important, twofold. The first one is, you realize how jacked up you are inside. Yesterday, I skipped lunch. It wasn't even all that intentional. And towards the, the end of the day, I was so irritable inside. Like, my kids are doing stuff, and inside I'm like, ah. And normally I'd just be like, ah, whatever. Oh, yeah, let's not do that. I was hangry, right? We, like, normalized hangry now. Snickers. Suffering reveals what's really down beneath in your heart. If you don't know what's underneath those rocks in your heart, in your inner life, you just need to inject a little suffering and it'll rise on up for you. Fasting is great. First Tuesday fast every month, we do it. We're going to start making it more public and put more emphasis behind it. On the first Tuesday of every month, we as a church fast for lunch, breakfast and lunch with a specific focus in mind. We want to learn together how to go through suffering that we would be really revealed to ourselves and we can take our real selves to one another and to Jesus and experience transformation. Who wouldn't want to do that? People who have fasted. <laughs> okay? Let's inject some controlled suffering into our life. Second, let's allow interruptions to preach to our heart. I was typing out this sermon and my computer was waiting about three seconds before it received the input. And the first thought in my mind was, I need a new flipping computer. And then the Holy Spirit, as I'm like typing out this sentence says, no, you don't. You just need to see that interruptions disrupt your efficiency, your perceived power, your effectiveness enough so that you'd realize you have a choice to make. You can 
trust me as the real one who has power and authority in your life. Or you could try and take it up for yourself and maximize your life with the most productivity and power you can get. I can assure you the second route will undo you and you will undo others in your wake. Now I'm not saying we just put up with every disruption in our life, I'm not saying that. But the little ones, like your iPhone, when you swipe on it, Android users are like, well, you should just get an Android. It doesn't happen to us. Your iPhone lags a millisecond, and you're like, oh my gosh, why is this, this is so frustrating to me? And then the Holy Spirit says, I'm right here with you. Just like, wait with me. Is that meaningful to you? Because if we were made for communion, disruptions are opportunities for communion. Let disruptions or interruptions preach to our hearts. One way you can just embrace this to the max is by Sabbathing. Sabbath is a willful interruption in your life. There are always needs. And you say, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to work. I'm going to embrace freedom. And there's nuance and complexity in all of that. Same thing with giving with saying, I'm giving away 10% of my income, 6% of my income. Anything that comes in, given away. My plan's interrupted. Same thing with serving. I'm going to commit to something instead of clicking maybe on the Facebook event and actually give myself away to something and disrupt my plans. And then something better comes along and I go, oh, I already committed to something. And I'm going to stick with my commitments and let my yes be yes and my no be no. Woof. Let's allow interruptions to preach to our heart that we are not our own, but belong to God. And third, let's practice honesty every day. It's, it's gone out of style, but confession is basic Christianity. It's not weird denominational preference Christianity. It's just Jesus. It's bringing our actual selves to the actual Jesus and dealing with him on his terms. So, let's be honest with him every day. Jesus, I know I'm broken. I see this area of my life. I see I'm overly reliant on caffeine. I see whatever it might be for you. I see my addiction to pornography. I just want to live with you honestly in the midst of it today. Every day, honesty with Jesus. And if we want to put like some sort of metric on honesty with his people, once a week, make sure you're honest with the people around you in the church. All right? If you don't know anybody well enough to be comfortable with that process, know some more people. Dive in. We're here every week. Now, I do need to say... What can we assure you of if you open up? First, an unshockable response. You couldn't tell me anything new. Been a pastor long enough, been in ministry long enough. There's, I'm just not shocked by stuff that people share anymore. And I want to suggest to us, let's just not be shocked by how profound sin is. Okay? Second, confession does not lead to cancellation. 
We're not going to block you out. We're not going to go to a different, uh, a different gathering or whatever it might be. Confession helps us know one another more deeply that we may love more profoundly. The, the, the gospel movement is not away from people who are honest, but toward people who are honest in love. Jesus was never shocked by people who were honest with him. You ever notice that? He called out people who hid from him in public. Confession won't lead you to cancellation, and there is grace to be transformed. God has hardwired the universe that when we are honest, grace comes in and rewires that crazy knot internally in us, and you can be a different you a year from now. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, but I assure you, a year from now and 10 years from now, if you walk in honesty, you will be a different you. So, it's possible. Are we willing? Are we willing? Let me pray for us. I'm going to invite the band up while I'm praying. Lord, um, thank you that you are faithful. Uh, we ask you, uh, help us to, to open up in surrender to you, to be aware of the culture that we are in, and to lay our lives down, draw near to you, Jesus, we, we take you at your word. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. We trust you. Help us be a people who allow disruptions to preach over us. Help us to walk in honesty with you every day and with community at least once a week. And help us to have the courage to inject some suffering into our life. In Jesus' name, amen.